Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Maria Elena Huambachano about one of her key projects, which is the right to Indigenous food security, sovereignty, and how it is in resonance with her Indigenous Peruvian background. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Civil Society and Community Studies, and also the Director of Biodiversity Protection and Indigeneity at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Her research focuses on the intersection of food sovereignty, agrobiodiversity, sustainability, and climate justice. Maria Elena has a very unique background where she was born in Peru and grew up in New Zealand. So these two identities have inspired her work. She talks about her work primarily with indigenous Quechua people of Peru and the Maori of Aotearoa, also known as New Zealand. By working with these two communities, she's able to better understand food security and environmental issues, land rights struggles, and the threat of state-driven economic development from an Indigenous people's perspective. One of the key issues in relation to Indigenous people's well-being is the extent to which government undermines their sovereignty. For example, Maria Elena talks about how in Peru, because of post-colonial systems and capitalism, indigeneity was not viewed as a positive thing, and so communities were forced to abandon their traditional ways of living, including how they grew food. This is slowly changing today, and she talks about how she's trying to capture and preserve the knowledge by using the Kipu model, which she developed and is an indigenous research-based framework that centers the interest and well-being of indigenous people. We talk about that and the principles of indigenous food sovereignty in the community she's worked with and for. We also discuss how food is viewed not only as a form of sustenance, but there is also a spiritual element of how indigenous communities connect with food. She's capturing all these stories and more in her book project entitled Global Indigeneity Food Sovereignty. We want food with a story which we talk a little bit about as well. This conversation with Maria Elena was extremely eye-opening and I really appreciate that she took the time from writing her book to coming onto the podcast and sharing her experiences and her research as an Indigenous food sovereignty expert. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation because I surely did and it's just opened up a whole other world for me. So I hope you enjoy it. Thank you again for making time to be on the Breaking Green Ceilings podcast. When I first came across your work, it was through a mutual friend, Amy, who we went to college together. And when she recommended that I talk to you and talked a little bit about your work, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, I really want to learn more about food indigeneity and what are the principles and values around that. And I've been just getting more in touch with those type of, or coming across more of such conversations. So to come across somebody who's actually doing intense research on it and even writing a book, I feel really lucky <laughs> as I have been throughout this process. So I wanted to start off with this really unique background that you have. You were born in Peru and then moved to New Zealand at a young age with your family. And now you're teaching at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It's like you've done a triangle across the world. A triangle. <laughs> so if at all, how does your identity influence how you perceive the natural world? Well, thank you so much for inviting me to talk about these important issues impacting Indigenous people, such as food systems. That's a key concept important for us to discuss. That's actually a really good question because the realities in Peru are when it comes to indigeneity or identifying yourself as an indigenous woman, it's very different to the New Zealand context. So when I traveled to Aotearoa, New Zealand, I was very inspired by this vibrant culture and seeing enacting the rights to self-determination and in their living cultures and being so ingrained on 
the Faka Papa, which is the layering of relationships, is a very unique Maori concept. And being so in tune with their indigeneity, it was very inspirational to me. And I look back in my experience in Peru of how we were still very proud. Our grandfather was always telling us stories about food, about how the family would grow food and they will come together and all these celebrations. And because they moved to urban areas, they was kind of taken away from them. And with new law in the 70s and 80s about this influx of indigenous peoples from rural areas to the city, they were seen as low-class people. They were seen as someone who is have a bad word thinking when it comes to agricultural activity. So he would always say, you have a nice last name. Mm-hmm. There's an indigenous last name. He would make jokes about it and say, we come from Inca loyalty because of the Wamba channel, Wamba channel last name. He would say, yes, Wamba, the princess Wamba married the prince channel. And that's how we came up with our last name. Wow. So those stories, we grew up listening to those stories. And I think now that I look back, it was a way to keep that in mind to, and to accept that it's inherent on who we are and where we come from. And we should not forget our legacy in despite of colonization. Now, other forms of colonization, such as capitalism, that is colonizing our food systems and thereby our well-being. So it's a way for us, as a reminder of where our loyalties come from and mm-hmm. when we look into the past and honoring the voices of the ancestors, we can move forward together. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That was a very sweet story, especially how your grandfather was explaining the origins of your last name. It reminded me of when as a teenager, you know, I asked my dad, like, what does our last name mean? Because coming from a Hindu and an Indian family, our first names mean something. And then our last names sometimes as well. And he told us, oh, you know, our name means land of herbs, because before we became rice farmers, pre-ag, that's what we used to grow. And I was like, oh, I had no idea. And then Later on, over the years, as we were coming into contact with other cultures, I learned that Moki is also an Arabic name, and it originates from the word Molach, which means king or kingdom. It brings so much more meaning to our origin, right? Like you said. And so once you moved to a place that's not your origin, how then do you keep your indigeneity while you're living in New Zealand, were there specific things that you were able to do because you're so far away from home? <laughs> exactly. And as I said, in Peru, I was better off not disclosing my indigeneity as opposed to New Zealand. In Aotearoa, New Zealand, I was able to express my cultural origin and I was welcomed and embraced by Maori and Bahia, who are the um, citizens of New Zealand or European descendancy. I was embraced by both these groups. And living two realities, one in Peru, when I was, my indigenous rights in indigenous were not recognized. And moving to a country where, yes, you are entitled to claim that you will have indigenous ancestry. Right. Um, it actually embraced my feelings of saying where I come from, disclosing more about my identity and understanding more about Maori culture and their food systems and how they relate to the environment, which was very similar, the same cosmovision and we have this intimate relationship with Mother Earth and Maori is Papa Tonuku and in Quechua language is Pachamama. So we would have this the same similar cosmovision but unique knowledge systems in the sense that our agricultural practices and celebrations and rituals and growing, harvesting and sharing food might be similar, but they were not the same because it's place-based, knowledge is Mm place-based. And discussions about food crops and the story that I'm going to tell you, it has changed my passion 
in focusing more on food security and food systems. Because I was more interested in climate change. I was very interested in water issues, water security. Mm. But then when I was traveling in this town, a Maori town of Tokoroa, and I had this lovely encounter with this Maori elder who saw um, my sister and I, and he came and said, where are you fellas from? And we said, we're from Peru. Straight away, he said, ah, we're related. Hmm. And he asked me, have you heard about the Kumara? And I said, the Kumara? And he said, in, in English, the Kumara is a Maori term, but in English, it's a sweet potato. Hmm. And he said, oh, of course, camote in Spanish. I said, yes, of course, camote. And he said, that's the, our sacred crop. It's sacred for us, for Maori, mm. that we treasure this food. It's our relation. It's where our whakapapa, our genealogy, our layering of relationships goes back to the creation stories where we come from. And I just look at him and explain him that Camote comes from South America, Central America, and my ancestors have been looking after this special crop. And it's a key ingredient in culinary cuisines, and especially in this main Peruvian seafood dish, ceviche. Camote mm. camote con is a must to be displayed on this beautiful dish. We both laughed, and he said, oh, I don't know about that. But the food, we are related. So it doesn't matter whether... My ancestors travel from South America to Polynesia or vice versa, Maori, or they travel down to South America. That is, for us, it doesn't have much importance as knowing that we are related. And this is sacred crop, the Kumara. And later on, they started growing Peru Peru potatoes on the east coast of Aotearoa, New Zealand, that meant that our ancestors have united before and we have an inheritance and the inheritance is for us to continue being the guardians of biodiversity and biocultural heritage and preserve our food crops because if we don't preserve our food crops, there will be a loss of intergenerational knowledge and practices. We will not be able to feed ourselves. Yeah. As you were talking about the story of you meeting the elderly man in New Zealand, I was totally imagining that story and that interaction. And so was that then what inspired you to kind of dedicate your life into Indigenous food sovereignty, that interaction? That interaction definitely played a key role in focusing on understanding food security from an Indigenous perspective, as mm-hmm. to understand food security in mainstream academia or mainstream literature. Right. And I understood that if we study food, so food, it's an entry point to the study of broader disciplines, environmental studies, indigenous studies. And that led me to focus on food justice, environmental justice. So Mm. I use food as an entry point to discuss and argue about this other different concepts. Yeah. That would then take me to the question of what are the principles of Indigenous food sovereignty? In our previous conversation, you did mention that it's place-based, but if there is a way that you can give us examples of how it may be unique to specific communities, for example, Quechua or Inca or Maya, Maya and other Maori, the many Indigenous tribes you've mentioned. So, yeah. If you could tell us about that. Yeah, knowledge is place-based because you learn techniques and skills based on the geographic area that you are living in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that leads to cultural practices, environmental indicators that you are in tune with when it comes to growing food, when it comes to hunting, when it comes to raising animals. and. All this information is important. Key values that I find out in acting and defining sustainable food systems and are at the core of Maori and Quechua philosophies of well-being in Aotearoa, mm-hmm. New Zealand, the 
principle or value of manakitanga, which means solidarity, care, affection. That's the one of the main principles that they exercised to continue the relationship with food. For instance, when you invite people over, there's hospitality, you embrace them, you share food, there's dynamics. Manakitanga, Faka Papa, knowing where your food comes from, the origins of your food, Faka Papa, technology, mm. the principle of Tino Tanarengatanga, which is the principle of self-determination as peoples of the land, that's your right, your inherent right to continue with this relationship with the land and the principle of guardianship, kaitakitanga, that's the principle of guardianship. How your Maori believes that the guardians of their lands and ancestral lands, biodiversity, mm. why they need to look after and preserve the ecosystems. In the case of the highlands of Peru, Ayu, this this self-governance systems, Ayu means self-governance of a community. It's Ayu, this Aine, Aine, it's this, especially in working in the land, it's reciprocity, it's working in a reciprocal way mm-hmm. and not taking too much from the land. It's the only you take what you need and leave the rest for the next generation or for the next family that needs to be fed. The principle of Chaninchai, solidarity again, and so we have Ayu, Aini, Chaninchai. There's a concept of duality that talks about working. It's gender-based. It's the, the men and the women working together. When they plant mm. the seeds, the here comes they come dancing together, dancing to the all the ancestors, the sun, the moon, the mountains, and they come together. And the man is the one that starts using the chakitajak, which is an agricultural tool, starts to plow in the land, and then here comes the woman going out, who will be the one placing the seed, and together they dance, and together they plant together. And also symbolizes equality. Mm. It symbolizes the sun and the moon complementing each other. So all these values are inherent in the good living philosophies, which means a sustainable way of living. And this just only the four that I'm mentioning, but they are broader principles and values contained within Maori communities. The ones I interview in the North Island of the country and the ones in Peru in the Quechua communities of Laris and in the Potato Park. And this was very hard to even pick four or five for my work, for my doctoral work. In, in, in my book, I'm going beyond those four or five to contextualize this indigenous food sovereignty framework. Mm. It talks about culture, environment, talks about political, social institutions that are based on these principles. And together they frame this indigenous food sovereignty framework that is more sustainable. I mean, it has been working for them for centuries. Yeah. Should be understood as such and respected as such in order to move forward from the current mainstream global food security, which is totally the opposite to our indigenous traditional food system. Right. We've really moved away from, I guess, our connection with Earth. And when I say we, I mean non indigenous folk. And it's really like you mentioned earlier, capitalism is now this form of colonization that is really disrupting indigenous practices. What are the other disruptors to indigenous practices? Well, definitely colonization is the main driver of us having this disruption with our human nature and spiritual relationships that we have with the land. Mm -hmm. Forms of colonization and oppression imposed on indigenous peoples are the current global food security model based on an industrial agriculture that disregards traditional practices, focuses on monoculture, 
as opposed to a polyculture mm. with regards to diversity, biodiversity. So all these main drivers have been there for centuries. Indigenous people have, are still struggling with colonization. Now forms of colonization as the current model that continue to oppress indigenous communities and not just indigenous communities, minority groups, people of color, African-Americans, Latin Americans, Asian communities. All these communities don't have access. They never want healthy foods. And for us, for indigenous peoples, it goes beyond having access to food. And currently, in a way, food is produced within a calorie-based accounting method. That's the main goal of the current industrial food security. They disregard nutrition, disregards the cultural component and the spiritual component. Food is not just something that you buy from a supermarket to give you enough calories to continue your daily activities and then keep refueling with this unhealthy food. In the long run, your health is going to be, it's a stake. Right. I really love the way you're explaining this. It makes it so much more tangible when you describe what is really problematic with our industrial agricultural practices. I mean, I'm aware of it, especially with the overuse of pesticides and with monoculture. And it's something that I observed when I was growing up in Kenya because we were taught that the backbone of Kenya is agriculture. And it was ingrained into the culture so much that some of my classmates were named after a certain season. Okay, I guess then that takes me into this. I don't know how I made this connection in my mind, but how are the seasons in the indigenous calendars that you've looked at impacted by modern agricultural practices or even by climate change, for example? Yes, definitely. I can definitely talk about that. For example, I'll give you an example. When a human group imposes a different diet or different kind of food onto another human group, in this case, indigenous communities, who are not used to eating that diet. In other words, when governments impose processed foods, flour, vegetable oil, all these foods that are not healthy onto indigenous diets that are way more healthier, Mm -hmm. foods. Then you are experiencing food injustice. You don't exercise the right to eat, to grow, to share food that speaks of your culture, speaks of the health of the land. Mm -hmm. And this disruption of our human nature and spiritual relationship with the land is experienced by the lack of understanding of seasonal activities that have been taken away with the current model, industrial model. So you think about it, for instance, on the, in North America, in Canada, for instance, the coastal community, the salmon is a precious food source, but not just for food source. They call it the father salmon because they obtain teachings, instructions about how to even ask permission to the salmon to be able to, for them to have access to it. And thank you, because of the salmon, the communities are being fed. So food security, it's not at stake. The same scenario, it's followed in the highlands with the corn. So if you think about this land that is polluted, that has so many pesticides, the land Mother Earth, Pachamama has been violated. You can't grow healthy crops. And these relationships about coming together as a community, growing specific crops according to the seasons, having these ceremonies, these festivals, harvesting festivals, summer solstice, winter solstice, everything is interconnected. All these mm-hmm. festivals, they have a meaning. And they honor the land and the natural and non-human world, the spiritual beings, the mountain, the rivers. Now we're experiencing a decolonization of time because 
those seasonal activities that have been in tune with agricultural calendars and how we know that specific crop. For instance, here in, in North America, in June, they call it the strawberry moon. That it means that it's time to harvest strawberry. Mm. Okay. In the highlands of Peru, they call it the Inca calendar, but in reality it's called the Quilla, which means the moon, and the Inti, which means in Quechua sun. So it's the Quilla and moon calendar, the solar and lunar calendar. And mm. they have their own values, principles, and festivals. In the month of June, it's when just before June, the elders will start observing, communicating, and discussing about when the interrogating me, which is the festival of the sun, but also is connected to the harvesting season. When will that take place? And the elders not just communicate with one another, they're in tune with the natural environment. They have mm-hmm. indicators, for instance, they have the fox. So when the fox makes this squeaky noise, that means that it's going to be not so good harvesting season. It was a time mm. to play it and think about it. So they're in tune with this, how they call it, natural indicators. Yeah. To continue working on the land and engage in the seasonal activities. So if you, like, what is happening right now, you stop those seasonal activities, just Stop people being in tune with their senses, with nature, with those natural indicators. And they don't put it into practice following the agricultural calendars. Then there is a disruption. All the ecosystems are not in tune with one another and they're right. all related. And this is what's happening right now. But indigenous communities and local communities all over the world. We are experiencing sweeping movement of food sovereignty that they want to reclaim the rights, the cultural rights. Most of the literature that I have read over the past decade, even more, about addressing food security, they disregard the cultural and spiritual component of food sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And definitely they disregard the knowledge system of indigenous peoples. Our knowledge is not considered scientific knowledge. We have to constantly validate where we get the information. I had to earn a PhD. I had to become an academic doctor to be able to validate this knowledge that I obtained from my ancestors and the people I work closely with. Yeah, and for some reason, you have to validate to the Western world that you are indeed knowledgeable in the science of food production or even in the science of the indigenous knowledge. So that makes me think, when have you faced this challenge along like your journey as an academic and how do you push back against it? I have to say that Living in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and working on my PhD, especially in the writing process, I had a great time, fabulous time in doing field work in the highlands of Peru, working with Quechua communities and with the Iwi tribes in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Everything started when I moved to the United States, because in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we understand each other. When we discuss mm-hmm. these issues, we know that it's a main issue when it comes to lack of recognition of indigenous knowledge, indigenous rights. And I'm inspired by the amazing work of Maori scholars and non-scholars, activists, the youth. When I came to the United States to do a post, as soon after I finished my PhD, I started a postdoc at Brown University. And that's when I started understanding more about the U.S. contextual background of injustice, I understood many terminologies that they were foreign to me, such as being called a professor of color because of my skin color, or being understood as someone that comes from a minority group, from a vulnerable society. So all connotations were new to me, and I'm learning to grapple with, and also learning about this concept of privilege. 
I was told by my students and colleagues, you have a privilege to tell your story. You have a privilege as an Indigenous scholar working in this U.S. university to do this and that. And probably I will never be comfortable with that word because for me, it's not a privilege. To me, I have the opportunity to tell our own stories. Mm-hmm. And now that I work more permanently in the United States, uh, I am an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and my work is even more recognized, I would say, within international domain. Mm-hmm. I've been invited to be part of international reports, such as the IBIS, which is the Government Panel of Biodiversity and Ecosystems. We're working on this report on the values of nature. And of course, you can't understand the values of nature if you don't have indigenous scholars who definitely know about the methods and how we understand and value nature. Right. There is only five of us wow. out of more than 100 social scientists. Mm. And more recently, I've been in, I am part of the high-level expert group, the United Nations, to write this report on use in agricultural systems. And within this experience on indigenous diplomacy, trying to find interesting ways to put our message across, interesting ways to say you can't study values of nature without understanding an indigenous worldview or cosmovision. So you can't go to chapter four thinking about, yes, values of nature without having right from the beginning in chapter one on the introduction, Mm -hmm. who are indigenous people? This is indigenous knowledge. It's a valid knowledge. So things like that that I've learned to grapple with and I'm still learning. I'm still learning about indigenous diplomacy. I'm still learning to be very articulated and have patience, have patience that our work, not just my work, the work of so many amazing Indigenous scholars, students, activists, all the work will definitely pay off in the long run. And there are times, there are times that I'm so saturated with so much info, um, we keep on making progress and then now what we've presented, the draft has not been approved or something, it's a backlash. Because it's a reality. The reality is that not all governments recognize indigenous people's rights. Mm-hmm. And this is my own country of Peru. Currently, we are working on this campaign to stop the Peruvian government imposition of GMOs in the country. In 2011, the Peruvian government signed this 10 years moratorium to ban GMOs in the country. It expires this year. Mm-hmm. And surprise, surprise, on the 27th of May, without us knowing because everyone's so concerned about COVID, there was this promulgation on the Peruvian website and the Ministry of Agriculture announcing this initiative pro-GMOs. So now working with Slow Food Peru on a campaign to push back the idea that GMOs can enter Peru because that will be devastating for mm-hmm. our biodiversity and biocultural heritage. So things like that will always be there. Mm-hmm. That we have to be reminded of that. And we also have to continue pushing against the status quo. And this is my work. This is something I chose to do, something I want to do, something I'm very passionate about. In something in a journey I'm still learning. I'm a forever learning. And as I said, indigenous diplomacy is key. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed, and thank you for everything that you do, have done, and we truly need people like you and more people like you to just really elevate the necessity of Indigenous knowledge and helping us. We can't even undo this mess (laughs) that we have created for ourselves, but I guess the closest word I can think of is just redeem ourselves from the mess that we've created. and. I'm sorry that you have to go through those experiences where your knowledge and your expertise is being questioned based on like your indigeneity, which sadly doesn't surprise me because I have experienced some of that in academia as well. So it's just shocking to me that people can use the word indigenous with privilege at the same time. Like you said, it is your right. 
And yet, I hope you are blessed with all the patience in the world. <laughs> I hope to say that we're seeing some changes. For instance, the IBIS report, they have formed an indigenous local knowledge group because they understand that our voices need to be heard. So I'm very appreciative of the work that they're doing. The people who I'm working with right now at the report and the IOLK group, they listen to the five voices of indigenous scholars that are there. That's great. They're making changes yeah. in the current file HLP report. I'm working with this amazing scholar, Hannah Whitman, and she understands our struggles. She's an ally. Mm-hmm. And that's why I accepted to be part of this report because I know how these policymaking reports look like. And I didn't want to be part of Validate One. Right. I'm accountable to my communities. I'm accountable to Quechua communities. I'm accountable to Maori communities. So I had to make sure that I'm not compromising my people's dignity and my dignity. Yeah. And as I said, working with Hannah Whitman has been great. And we feel we are progressing and we're making progress. Yeah. Now, that's awesome that we're able to, or you're working on initiatives to help promote Indigenous knowledge so that it's something that hopefully governments can implement and help us kind of undo some of those really harmful agricultural practices that we have been implementing for centuries or since colonization, really. (laughs) I need to correct the timeline here. So we have about 10 minutes left in our interview. There's one thing that I really wanted to ask you about before we move into our lightning round, and it's about the model of Indigenous research-based framework that you developed. It's called Kipu, if I'm saying it correctly. I apologize if I butchered that word. I love models, so (laughs) especially research-based models. So tell us about Kipu and how it helps kind of streamline Indigenous food sovereignty. Yes, thank you for asking that question because... Developing our own research methods is a form of enacting sovereignty and autonomy. That's what I wanted to do in my work. And the reason why I decided to develop the Kipu model is because during my early trips to Peru, because in the beginning I wasn't sure where I should I focus in the Amazon region or in the highlands of Peru. So I was connecting with communities, traveling. During those travels, I was appalled and I was very saddened by the fact that researchers and institutions did not have the correct cultural protocols. They did not understand the ways of acquiring, sharing, and exchanging knowledge rooted on indigenous worldviews or cosmovisions. That experience was shocking coming from New Zealand when there is an established research framework named the Kapapa Maori, which is a unique Maori framework to work with Maori communities and it specifies the behavior and how a researcher should uphold Maori knowledge systems and cultural systems. And seeing this disparity, seeing this contrast, I wanted to develop something that would provide my own people a tool to enact the rights to say, no, I don't want you to interview me. I don't want you to extract knowledge anymore. Mm-hmm. That was the main driver for me to develop that, to have something more established and to give voices to Quechua and Maori communities. And they had full sovereignty in the sense that they worked with me right from the beginning to develop the research questions or the topics and how I should conduct, I don't even call it interviews because what we had was just casual talks, storytelling, discussion. It was the, and the indigenous way, something yeah. that... A conversation. Yeah, it was a conversation. It was constant dialogue that we had and having so much fun listening to the stories and working on the land and being part of this Thai food in Maori celebrations, the same in the highlands. So the Kipu model is rooted on indigenous worldviews or cosmovision. That's the positionality of the Kipu. It's 
grounded on a Quechua Maori worldviews. And together, we discussed their main research methods. And that's how the Kipo informed me of the most culturally sensitive methods to conduct work with Quechua and Maori communities to be able to gain rich information, information that is not so biased. Because something I've learned as well by my elders in the Highlands, they will say, they come to our community. This is anthropology, sociologists, scholars come, and not just from overseas from Peruvian universities as well. Mm-hmm. They just come asking how many corn seeds do you have? How many potato seeds do you have in this? And I tell them we, I have 20, but we have more than 20. And I can tell you the names and where they come from and how we inherited them. Wow. So to me, it was also a form to validate the sources of information and to provide validity. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the main aim of the Kipu model, to present a model inspired and drawn from literature from the Kapapa Maori and Andean cultural protocols and worldviews blended into this model that provides them with autonomy, sovereignty, and they are study partners. They work with me, and I will always acknowledge, even my publications acknowledge the work of Quechua and Maori communities and my publications are named the amazing Maori and Quechua knowledge holders of multi leaders. I specifically named them because to me, it's how do you make sure that what is published is correct? And also within our community, it's all about accountability, it's all about relationality. Yes, I love that because. Coming from a research background, we learned about qualitative methods of in-depth interviews and focus groups. Sometimes we, actually, I don't even remember that we ever talked about the ethics of how we extracted that information. Extracting information is always invasive, but how do you do it in a way that it's actually mutually beneficial, but more so if that it's more beneficial, especially to the indigenous community at the end of the day. So your model essentially provides a protocol on how to conduct research-based methods with Indigenous communities. Is that correct? Yes, okay. it's a model that can be used in another context. Mm-hmm. With working with Indigenous communities in Central America or in Africa, it provides the main grounding principles and values that you should be aware of and centering working with Indigenous peoples in for the benefit of Indigenous peoples and centering the accountability, the ethics part of it that is often overlooked in academia. Yeah, for sure. So the first question in our lightning round is, what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? I reread recently the book by Bandana Shiva, Seed Sovereignty, because as I said, I'm working on this against or no GMOs campaign in Lima, Peru. And that's why I just wanted to to read what has been written and also gain strength, gain strength from amazing indigenous leaders that are making change. And so that was the book that I read a couple of weeks ago. I reread it again. So it was a pleasure to actually gain more knowledge and understand. Yeah. I love Vandana Shiva and I read her book, Water Wars, and I hope that I can one day interview her. (laughs) What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? I love nature and I have to be in tune with nature and I have to go for runs. This is why I love Madison because I see green spaces. So I just chose this nice path to run every day. And also, seeing the ocean, seeing the lake, or anything that has to do with water. Mm-hmm. But those key elements are very important to me and keep me going. And of course, cooking a nice meal, just being able to enjoy my time with myself. Yeah. Be thankful for the food that's been provided by Pachamama. And that's kind of my me time that keeps yeah. me going. Yeah. What's your favorite meal? I have to say I'm very Peruvian. So 
I like this potato-based dish called carapulcra. Mm-hmm. I was made of dry potatoes. Mom gave me some the last time I visited Peru. And the flavors that you add to it, mm-hmm. uh, a winter dish, but I still eat it in the summer. And you just add these spices that you can find in Peru, yellow chili, this mirasol chili, and all these nice spices. Even my mom, she prepares these tiny, tiny, small packages with the key spices and I don't even know what it is and I mm. do my carapulcra. So that's my main. And everything that has to do with a potato. <laughs> <laughs> I do love potatoes. <laughs> and most of our Peruvian dishes, they're heavily based on potatoes. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I don't know much about Peruvian food except for ceviche and that's it, unfortunately, but something to explore. What's the best piece of advice you've received? To be patient. That's the best advice I've received. To yeah. be patient that things or change will take place. You just have to just persevere and be patient. Yeah. And then finally, what is your superpower? I would say building communities, being able to relate to one another, being able to develop relationships, uh, connect one, someone to the other across regions, continents. And I've moved so many times. I've moved so many places and I, and I was really yeah. blessed to build that community. I was able to forge close relationships that are still available to me. And I continue to nurture those relationships. Yeah. That will be probably my superpower. And I talk too much. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you talk too much. I think you have so much wisdom and I would love to continue talking to you for more hours. But we are on a time crunch here. So how can people follow you on your journey? I recently joined Twitter and I've been more active on Twitter. Okay. Yes, it's, it's an art. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Which I'm learning. <laughs> yeah. And I would say anything that has to do with sustainable food systems or indigeneity, that would be useful because we need people need to be more knowledgeable or where our food comes from, who is growing our foods, and also the boundaries, the planetary boundaries, what happens if you overproduced or what happens if you exploit the land. So just be more conscious about our boundaries and how to replenish the land, how to revitalize our food systems. It's more about how would you like to lead a healthy life. How would you like to address human flourishing? That being able to have access to a decent living food and enjoy well-being. So how do you get to say, I am actually enacting my rights, capabilities to lead a healthy life? Yeah. I love that response because most of the people have provided their social media links, but you have provided a principle of living on how we can follow your principle of living or one of your principles of living. So that's beautiful. Is there anything else you would like to add before we put a pause on our conversation here? I would just say that with this kind of discussions, this the kind of dialogue that I enjoy being part of, because as I said, we need to be more aware of these issues of what's impacting not just a specific group of people, human group, but everyone mm-hmm. in this world. And also for the next generation, the youth, that they're our future. And to me, that's important because we work together and the kids know what's happening and what's in this youth movement because they're experiencing this environmental and for injustice. Yes. That's why we need a kind of dialogues and conversations. And in that way, I don't feel alone. I don't feel that pushing against this status quo. But there are more and more people that understand what we're doing. And as I said, it's not just me. They are now getting to know more of amazing indigenous scholars, allies that 
They want to see a change. They want to, as I call it, we need a paradigm shift. We need to move away from the unsustainable way of how we've been living over the past, especially five decades, to sustainable living that repositions the role of indigenous communities, local communities, people who work and are so embedded in nature and in the land, reposition uh, how we think about food system, how we think about well-being to be able to move forward and our next generation can lead or can enjoy sustainable futures. And I just recently had the wonderful news that my sister gave birth to my niece. And now that I'm an auntie, I want to just, I can't wait for her to be like two, three years old to take her to where I go and then just teach her how to grow food or be in the highlands and just teach her. And my sister's also just very good when it comes to making sure that there is no loss of cultural connections between Peru and this newborn who is born in this new generation with technology. And I have full faith that my sister will continue her journey. Yeah. So I definitely that's, that's what I would say. And thanks so much for uh, the time and planning this. We planned this for a couple of months now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's definitely a pleasure and an honor to be part of these conversations. And looking forward to more. Of course. I want to like interview everyone for the second time because there's just so much depth of knowledge and wisdom. And I feel really humbled and honored that you made time from your very busy schedule to stay in touch and just let me know that you're still willing to participate in our journey and you are not alone. I'll tell you this, I found an increasingly growing community of people who are really pushing to elevate indigeneity, indigenous knowledge and the importance of it to really our global well-being. So thank you for everything that you do. And I wish you the best of luck and you have all the support in the world that you need. Thank you so much. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.